0: World, we got this.
1: The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello, world. Uh, Welcome to this special edition of World, we got this. Uh, This is focused on East Asia, East Asia in focus uh, webinar, preventing the next pandemic. Lessons from East Asia. I'll be your chair today. My name is Dr. Robin Klingler Vidra. I'm a senior lecturer at King's College uh, in the Department of International Development, where I look at innovation, entrepreneurship in East Asia. Uh, I've focused in recent months on what's happening in Vietnam's uh, and Vietnam's response to COVID-19, keeping the number of cases below uh, 300 and still zero deaths. With recent reporting, in fact, of uh, the most critical patient, a British pilot, uh, on his road to a full recovery now. Um, so that's been my focus. I'm delighted to be given my my focus on East Asia innovation and the uh, the response to the pandemic. I'm delighted to be chairing today's webinar um, with two. Excellent uh, colleagues and and researchers who have published uh, a report that we're uh, focusing on um, in the webinar today. Uh, a word about the event and, and how it will run. so this event is supported by the School of Global Affairs at King's College, London, uh, particularly the School the Global Health and Social Medicine and Department of European and International Studies, uh, where two of where our two panelists come from. Uh, it is, an apologies, I'm uh, like many of you, sort of moving across multiple devices. Uh, it's one of a series of, of these in-focus webinars. Um, and the format of these, and this is, you know, I'm chairing this one as someone different chairs each one. Uh, but the format is to look at a particular country or region uh, and the response to COVID-19. So last week, for example, the Brazil Institute led with a discussion around that country's response. uh, And next week, the African Leadership Council, the African Leadership Center, rather, uh, at King's will be hosting a similar discussion. Uh, There's more on the King's website, so head there uh, if you're interested in what's happening in in Brazil, or or if you want to plug in uh, next week to see what the ALC, the African Leadership Center, uh, has to say. For today in particular, we're going to hear a presentation of the recent research that I mentioned from two experts and two of my colleagues based upon their reports, uh, which is entitled Lessons for the Next Pandemic, Lessons from East Asia. We'll then move to an open panel in which we discuss the points raised in the presentation. I am chairing, but as in the spirit of being a good chair, I'm interested in helping to channel your questions to our panelists uh, rather than uh, only leading with with mine. So please do be in touch um, to let us know what what questions and responses you have. So we'll have a live Q&A with you, with the audience. Um, And some questions have already been submitted ahead of time. And as I said, you'll also be able to submit questions during this event and we will uh, respond and pick them up in the live portion uh, after we have the opening presentations. Uh, so I now I'm going to introduce the two panelists in turn um, and I've asked them to each speak for about five minutes uh, drawing on their insights from the report and on their research more broadly. Uh, so I'll introduce first uh, my colleague Ramon Pacheco-Pardot from the Department of European and International Studies, where he is a reader. Uh, Ramon is going to open our webinar today talking about, um, again, the insights from the report, particularly the usefulness of of what he calls the institutional memory uh, that has been developed in East Asia from past experiences with SARS uh, in particular as well as the effectiveness of legal frameworks that underpin public health measures in many East Asian nations. Uh, So with that, I I hand over to Ramon to tell you about uh, his research on this topic. Ramon, take take it. Go ahead, run with it.
2: Thanks, Robin, and uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. So so basically what uh, we did with the report, right, we wanted to see how Certain countries in East Asia had uh, responded to the pandemic uh, quite well uh, compared to countries in other parts of the world. So you didn't see overwhelmed uh, healthcare systems, you didn't see a high uh, death rate per capita, you didn't see full countrywide lockdowns like we have had in in several countries in Europe and several places in the U.S. uh, as well. Uh, And what we saw is that uh, these countries obviously had gone uh, over pandemics and epidemics uh, in the past. Uh, SARS has been mentioned, uh, swine flu as well, uh, MERS as well. And they had learned lessons from uh, these pandemics or uh, epidemics, right? Importantly, though, they not only learned lessons from uh, these cases that took place in their own countries. They also learned lessons from what happened in other countries, in East Asia and other parts of the world as well. So for example, there was some learning from the uh, uh, Ebola case that was not in East Asia, right? And what we we, um, make clear in the report is that learning lessons uh, is important. So we focus on lessons regarding uh, the appropriate legal framework that should be in place uh, once an emergency, because a pandemic is an emergency, hits a particular country lessons regarding having clear decision-making processes and structures so who is taking decisions and who is implementing the decisions that are being taken Uh, and also marithi will talk more about this uh, later on uh, the operation of the healthcare system and the public health uh, institutions but we also focus on how these lessons can be maintained from pandemic to pandemic or from uh, epidemic to epidemic, because these lessons, for example, if you look at uh, the example of the US, if you look at the example of uh, Europe, uh, the case of, of the UK specifically as well, uh, some of these lessons have been learned in the past, but were forgotten. And what we look at uh, is two different uh, aspects of it. Uh, first of all, the institutions that are in charge of um, learning uh, the lessons, but also making sure that these lessons are not forgotten. And this is normally centers to deal with uh, epidemics or with uh, disease that all countries across the world or all regions across the world actually do have. But in the case of Eustachia, operated quite well. Uh, and we saw that uh, there were two reasons for this. One of them, because they are very well resourced. So uh, even over the past few years, right, since uh, the MERS epidemic that hit uh, uh, Korea and other parts of of, of of East Asia. There was a period of five years until COVID nineteen, in which East Asia was not really hit uh, by, by pandemics or epidemics. But still, uh, you have these institutions that were well resourced, were able to 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 maintain their human resources, their research activities, uh, their cooperation with the WHO uh, to make sure that they hadn't forgotten the lessons. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, and, and the second uh, aspect of it uh, is that you have playbooks. That are collected, uh, that are put together when a pandemic or an epidemic takes place, and they are updated as there are cases in other parts of the world. And these playbooks were updated when COVID-19 uh, hit East Asia. So uh, these uh, lessons that had been learned were implemented almost uh, immediately. Right? Uh, for example, uh, isolation, uh, testing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, contact tracing, something that we're still discussing in some European countries. How do we uh, engage in proper contact, uh, contact tracing? That was done very quickly in, in countries across uh, East Asia. Uh, and another aspect that I want to focus uh, for this introductory uh, uh, remarks uh, has to do with, as you mentioned, uh, the legal framework. Now what you see across East Asia is that uh, pandemics, uh, other types of outbreaks, they are treated as, as emergencies, right? So you have to take decisions quickly you need to know who takes the decisions you need to know who is in charge of implementing the decisions so what you see is that uh, these countries have a ligand frequency that can be implemented as soon as there is a hint of a pandemic potentially hitting the country and then what you see is that these specialized agencies that we mentioned before uh, these centers to control disease uh, suddenly they are empowered to take decisions. So it is professionals taking decisions, obviously politicians, policymakers have to be involved because many decisions at the, end, at the end of the day, they are political decisions. But you see how these centers actually do play a central role in the decision-making process and they can actually uh, direct the implementation process with the different agencies that have to, that have to do this. Uh, and, and this is something that hasn't necessarily been the case in other countries across the world, where we have seen a response that has been slower or that has been more politicized. Right? I'm not going to name countries now, we can discuss later, but this politicization of the response to the pandemic was not necessarily the case uh, uh, in East Asia. Uh, I'll leave it there for my introductory remarks and we can discuss later.
1: That's great. Thanks a lot, Ramon. There's so many questions to, to ask about how to continue with the resources even in times where you're not at the center of of what's happening and and also the quick action in using the the legal frameworks but i will leave i'll leave it there so that we can introduce um our our second panelist uh but hopefully our our audience uh, today is thinking about questions uh, to to ask you um for the next segment uh, so, our second panelist is Professor Mauricio Avendano Cabon, which I think I've said pretty well. Correct me, set me straight if, if I haven't. Uh, He's the director of the Institute of Gerontology and a professor of public policy and global health uh, here in, at King's College London. Uh, Mauricio will speak in his opening remarks about the public health system response and, in particular, the role of technology. Uh, and how these, these two uh, aspects of what he's going to look at have been developed and primed, perhaps in a way that's similar and leads um, or continues on the, the narrative uh, that Dr. Pacheco Pardo was speaking about. Uh, so, uh, Marisa, if I can hand over to your, you for your opening remarks.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Robin, and thank you, Ramon, for the introductory remarks and thank you all for attending this event and uh, for the opportunity to welcome you here in, uh, in the warmth of uh, my uh, kitchen living room. Um, so, yeah, let me sort of continue with um, uh, the remarks that Ramon has said, sort of touching on two critical points that we try to emphasise in the report. Um, that relate basically to the kind of um, lessons for preparedness that countries in East Asia um, implemented, according to the review that we that we did. And basically, what we found is that uh, countries in East Asia um, uh, really strengthened their public health and their healthcare systems very much based on the experience with prior epidemics. As Ramon said, sort of the SARS epidemic was potentially one of the most important ones, but also the MERS epidemic and H1N1 as well. Um, And they focus on measures that actually tackle two areas. Um, One of them would be the areas uh, related to public health measures. So those measures that are aimed at uh, stopping or containing the transmission, the further transmission of disease. And secondly, the measures that really aim to tackle the kind of clinical response that touches more on the healthcare system, um, really focusing on a to avoid that the healthcare system became overwhelmed. Um, so essentially, um, a part of this effort in, included uh, um, many different approaches across different countries, but there were a series of common elements. So for example, in the area of public health, uh, there was clearly, as Ramon said, a reforming and a strengthening of um, existing disease control um, institutes and organisations within the country. This was very much something that came out of the SARS epidemic, uh, but also uh, from the other pandemics that had hit the region. Um, now, the second was the use of advanced technological systems. Um, use of public health networks and centralized systems of information for surveillance and also for case detection. Um, Many of the things that have become actually very common for other countries and that we actually in Europe, probably many of us did not uh, ever kind of run into them, things like the creation of checkpoints and border quarantine procedures, um, um, were very important sort of strategies that actually um, as, a, as sort of the region was already familiar with, and essentially also the strengthening of the capacity for dia- for, for diagnostics. there was much collaboration between the private sector. Uh, private firms and the public sector to develop the, uh, the, the strong sort of um, diagnostic capacity that is, that is required, as the WHO says, uh, not to fight the epidemic uh, uh, with blind eyes. So there were so many of these measures that actually have become widespread were measures actually that uh, the region had already um, been familiar with. Now that refers sort of to the area of public health, um, but we saw a kind of similar set of lessons that were learned from the previous epidemic, also in response to what the healthcare system should do in order to, to, to avoid becoming overwhelmed. And and I think one of the lessons that um, uh, countries in the region learned was the importance of preventing um, in hospital transmission, making sure that hospitals did not contribute to the spread of the epidemic and that there was an awareness that in hospital transmission could actually reduce the willingness of the public to to come to hospitals, to use medical facilities and so on. Um, So making everything that could be done basically a really uh, very widespread effort to avoid overwhelming the system, but also making sure that this system the healthcare system could actually um could actually operate um Without obstacles. Now, many of the things that have been critical in countries like the UK and where, where failures were really evident uh, um, did not happen uh, because of the lessons of um, previous epidemics. So one of them is the stockpiling of personal protection equipment, which is called PPE, um, and that many countries in Asia um, had actually realized as a very important factor. They had also realized that many of these uh, stockpiling um, could actually, uh, you know, be used up very quickly during an epidemic. So they knew that this needed actually to be renewed. Um, and the building of intensive care units and negative pressure isolation rooms and facilities that may have made it uh, into the news for the case of China. This was also something that they that didn't sort of came out of the blue. This was something that they were prepared for. And essentially the training of medical professionals as well on how to prevent risk and, and, and how to sort of um, uh, respond clinically. So these are sort of just... Just a, key, a few key examples of the lessons that really came from previous epidemics. Um, now, the second sort of point that I wanted to emphasize, or that we, uh, together with Ramon and our colleagues, wanted to emphasize, is that uh, the Asian response really highlighted the enormous potential of technology as a crucial tool for uh, first effectively implementing public health measures, but also to managing the clinical response and also to communicate with the public. And technology really played a critical role in the case of Asian East Asian countries. Um, now there were um, uh, is a, a large umbrella term to refer to a number of different interventions that involved a combination of communication technology, artificial intelligence, and essentially big data um, that was used actually to um, to to, uh, to to sort of respond to the technology now many of these technologies have been used as a, you will know for contact tracing uh, but also for quarantine enforcement information dissemination and, and basically to understand the spread of the epidemic uh, one of the interesting examples that we found was the use of patient record databases um, for example the countries um, um, countries like Taiwan essentially have, a single-payer national centralized um, uh, health system that actually enables um, utilizing a centralized real-time database uh, that actually included all insurance claims that covered the full or almost the entire population. Um, this was really important, you know, it's very common to use this kind of data for research or for planning of healthcare services, uh, both in European countries, for example, the US as well as in Asian countries. But what was unique of the East Asian response is that this was actually used in order to trace and to identify pockets of disease that could be um, could be kind of the, the, the focus of intervention and, and, and this was really critical, particularly in the case of Taiwan but also in other countries, um, as an effective way to respond now other areas of technology sort of more specialized uh, include things like the use of robots, for example, in social care to, de- to, 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 to deliver food to, to check for temperature to clean hospitals this in fact uh, um areas and so on um technologies also for online diagnosis um um, and so on and and quite importantly this technology did not actually Uh, replace the importance of people involved in the epidemic. On the contrary, this technology really requires a boost in human resources, an increase, for example, in contact tracers that know how to use the technology and that can gather information, but also human resources to um, identify clustering and surveillance and to manage those clusters that are identified. So I think these are sort of some some of the very important lessons that I think, uh, that we think actually very much explain why the response of um, East Asian countries uh, was very different, much more controlled, much more coordinated um, than the response in, for example, Europe and the United States. I think I will leave it there and uh, sort of uh, give the room um, back to back to Robin. Thank you very much.
1: Great. Thank you so much, uh, Marisa. You also give us a ton to, to think about. Um, I'll just ask a, a few questions, and then we'll we'll start to turn to our our live Q and A. Um, you know for me, some of the themes that you both discussed are having this, the right systems, right? So having the persistence of, of resources for the institutions that are responsible, as, as Ramon mentioned, um, getting quickly to use and, and develop new technologies, as you mentioned. Mauricio, and, and investing in public health care to ensure that it doesn't get overwhelmed in case something happens. So there's sort of getting systems right. How, how did that happen, though? Right? It's, so, so there's the institutional memory and, and things. But if, if we look at, you know, having the systems right, having the legal environment right, um, having resources right, okay, and thinking about what we can learn for the next pandemic, the next epidemic. But how do we do that? How do, you, how do you motivate a society, a government, to make those investments, to make those changes after this pandemic?
2: So, so, so I think there are two, two components here, right? One of them is, is, is how do you keep the memory and then how do you incentivize governments to, as you say, keep the systems, right? In terms of institutional memory, what we see is that funds went to these specialized institutions, these centers to manage disease, so that they could do different things, right? So that they can have uh, regular uh, reports or pandemic plans that are updated on an annual basis, for example, that they can engage in uh, emergency tabletop uh, exercises, right? So these exercises that can relate to how do we deal with a pandemic? South Korea, for example, had one in, in, in December, right? How, how, do mm. we, how would South Korea deal if, if a pandemic is coming from China hits the country? Um, reports uh, by by expert groups, not necessarily inside the institutions, but outside institutions, and also there is the component of uh, international cooperation. So we have, for example, trilateral meetings on a regular basis uh, between the pandemic agencies, so the disease uh, agencies uh, from China, Japan, and, and, and South Korea. A lot of cooperation, for example, with the uh, WHO uh, and This was due to governments, uh, going back to your question, realizing that you need to invest uh, in these areas, but that you also need agencies that are fairly independent from government, that are not politicized. And I think that is key. Um, uh, The example of uh, SARS and MERS are quite interesting because SARS was seen as a failure in places such as Hong Kong or China. MERS was seen as a failure somewhere like South Korea. But but you didn't see the political bickering that could have taken place, right? And and, and experts being replaced with uh, others uh, for political reasons. Uh, there was a realization that those who have dealt with a pandemic, even if the uh, response hasn't gone uh, as planned, they should still remain in place because they have learned the lessons. So that you have learned the lessons, right? So you kind of give them another opportunity. And a lots of funding. Right? You see lots of funding going into these uh, into these agencies uh, so that they can conduct their own research, but also, as I mentioned before, so that they can go uh, and learn lessons from other countries, so that they can have uh, regular conversations with the WHO, which has a lot of of, of knowledge about uh, how to deal with pandemics and, 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 and epidemics. These regular meetings that take place uh, also, for example, in this discussion about ASEAN plus three agencies, so the ASEAN plus uh, countries plus China, Japan, and Korea meeting on a regular basis now right so you need the resources to to, to do this and Mauricio mentioned this uh, briefly as well uh, cooperation with the uh, with the private sector uh, is key right uh, there is cooperation in terms of research but also when the pandemic uh, hit the different countries uh, cooperation with the private hospitals for example to boost capacity these type of things right so so there are economic resources so that governments can compel the private sector should cooperate with the public sector, right? With public hospitals, for example, and that these hospitals are not being overwhelmed. So those things uh, actually do matter, and we have seen how they have mattered in the response to COVID-19.
0: Perhaps if I can um, add to that, I think this this really covers uh, most of the reasons I think why this happened. Um, Another point that I will sort of emphasize that Ramon briefly mentioned is the idea of um, um, carrying out functional exercises to maintain this memory. Many of these countries basically Use the opportunity, for example, of H1N1 as a kind of exercise for maintaining this uh, memory, but also, for example, for um, identification of providers, maintaining relationships between government agencies and health officials, and so on. So this was really critical: the the, the creation of a system that uh, you know enables to maintain um, these relationships. And the other point that I would mention is that that I think that uh, you know SARS, uh, but also MERS, for example, in South Korea, had had quite a strong kind of psychological impact on the Population. So these were actually very scary events for the populations. These were actually pandemics which had much higher case fatality rates. We're still sort of trying to figure out what the case fatality rate is for this pandemic. But for SARS, for example, it's estimated around 15% and for MERS, 20%. So these are very high, even though the transmission is much lower, these are very high case fatality rates. So there was a clear sort of, uh, you know, real call from the population of understanding how serious this can be. And I think this was just not present, for example, in European countries. So one would hope that this 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 actually this pandemic, uh, COVID-19 could be seen as a kind of exercise for the kind of preparation that might be needed for the future.
1: That seems like a glimmer of hope, actually, for the European and, and US context, a silver lining, if you will, that perhaps it is you know having this psychological impact that comes from being very closely. Uh, face with and, and dealing with it on your home soil that will lead to some of these exercises uh, and uh, continued importance, as, as you both mentioned, You know the, the regular drills and exercises, the ongoing encouragement of cooperation and, and collaboration. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a positive, um, if, if we can say that maybe that is the case. Um I'll, as, I, as I promised uh, at the outset, I will not uh, abuse my position of chair I want to facilitate. Um, so we have questions in, and I'll, I'll start um, by posing to both panelists the first question that's come in from the audience, uh, which is, has the success in East Asia been across countries, both rich and middle income?
2: I guess the answer is, is yes. Uh, I mean, in, for, in the report, uh, we cover uh, high-income countries, uh, Japan, Singapore, Korea, Taiwan uh, and Hong Kong, uh, which is uh, independent for the purpose of managing this type of, of, of diseases and pandemics. We also look at China that obviously failed in the beginning uh, when when the outbreak took place in Wuhan, uh, but afterwards uh, has done quite well. But I mean, Robin, you have done research on, on, on Vietnam, for example, has had a good uh, response as well. So what we have seen is that the, the success has been about different levels of, 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 of income uh, and, and I would add that uh, it is not really about the, the level of income of these countries but how do they allocate resources, right? And, and if you decide that a uh, healthcare system, uh, emergency, pandemic, epidemic preparedness is important then you can uh, use enough resources, right? Uh, and that's what we have seen. These countries considered to be this important, uh, probably as Mauricio mentioned, mentioned before, among other reasons, because they suffer from, from, from SARS, for example. So, so they know how this can actually go wrong. And they decided to prioritize this. So I wouldn't say it's about income. It's really about how do you allocate resources. Uh, and even middle-income countries or countries that are in, uh, a bit poorer uh, can actually deal with pandemics quite effectively.
1: I, maybe I'll I'll just jump in on the on Vietnam as as I think an incredible example in this that's re- recently gotten more coverage. So as I mentioned at the beginning, less than 300 deaths, 300 cases, zero deaths. Uh, so the strategy there was very much flatten or crush the curve from the beginning, so to ensure that the healthcare system and, and the population isn't overwhelmed. That meant really early decisive action to to shut down a lot of things. Uh, when schools closed for the for the New Year holiday for Tết uh, at the end of January, they didn't reopen in February. Uh, you know, incoming travel was was closed down, and, and I think really fascinating and linking with Mauricio's points as well about encouraging technology and and collaboration. Uh, the Ministry of Science and Technology in Vietnam helped to really mobilize. Uh, the local development of test kit uh, capabilities early on, so that happened in January. Uh, so I, I think a lot of the the themes that you picked up here and then I'll go further into in the report, as you say, are are very much present uh, in the case of of Vietnam as well, certainly. Um, so I'll, I'll move to to our second uh, question, uh, which comes from uh, Francisco, who is listening and watching uh, in Sao Paulo. And he asks, are political systems important to successful response? And do we think Western democracies are poorly set up to tackle pandemics?
2: <laughs>
1: Great question. Yes,
2: it is a good question. Uh, Maritza, you want to go ahead or you want me to take this one?
0: I will leave you uh, address that one, Roman.
2: Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that we, we looked at, right? Is that it's, uh, it, it's not, I mean the, the simple answer is no, and I will elaborate on on, on that. Right? I mean you have uh, places such as uh, countries such as Taiwan, uh, Korea, and yeah, and Japan. Uh, full democracies, uh, very good response to the pandemic. They, ha- they have they having many articles, for example, about uh, Korea and, and and Taiwan. They they, they did really well uh, uh, from the beginning. In the case of Taiwan, preventing the spread of the pandemic. In the case of South Korea, once it was in the country, right? Uh, uh, we, with an outbreak in, in in Tegu, from as you said flattening the, the the curve, right? As as Vietnam did, for example. But then you have uh, countries that are not democratic, uh, such as uh, Hong Kong, and obviously there are questions about how democratic Singapore is, uh, or not. But certainly it's not a full democracy like like it would like would be the cases of of, of Taiwan, Korea, and, and Japan, who also provided a good response uh, to the uh, to the pandemic. So I think it's more about uh, the, the, the capacity uh, of the state, right? What institutional capacity does it have to deal uh, with, with, with the pandemic? And um, it's not about how compliant the population is or not, because there is also this idea that the population is more compliant and obviously in authoritarian regimes, you can actually enforce decisions in a way that in democracies uh, cannot be done. Because I mean, we have seen across Europe uh, full lockdowns in which people were not able uh, to leave their houses. So they were only able to leave maybe once a day uh, to, 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 to get some food. These are not authoritarian regimes. These are democracies that decided to implement these decisions, right? Uh, and, and the population complied with them. So it's really about the um, uh, the, the institutional capacity, as we keep uh, mentioning in the report. And I will um, uh, emphasize uh, one thing as well when it comes to the event about dictatorships. Uh, versus uh, the, the democracies is that you, you could make uh, the case that uh, the most successful country of those we look at in in the report uh, is, is is actually uh, uh, Taiwan, right? Uh, has been extremely successful. And what you see here is that uh, Taiwan, if anything, as we have seen with the recent elections, uh, is is one of the strongest democracies not only in the region, but at the uh, uh, at, the global, at the global level, right? So, so I don't think that's, uh, that's one of the factors. Um, now, what we're looking at in many European countries, including the UK, but also the European countries, is how uh, democracies can act in a way that is not uh, intrusive on their populations. And it is true that there is a debate on East Asian countries about how intrusive should the mechanisms that we have identified in the report, the use of technology as well, Uh, should be or not and again there are differences here Uh, japan has taken a less intrusive uh, approach for example uh, than than korea so there are levels also within democracies about how uh, intrusive do you want these mechanisms uh, to be or not to be right and 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 it's not that democracies act in one way or certain regimes in another way is that you can actually pick and choose uh, different type of policies according to the social contract that you might have with your own population, even in a democratic regime.
1: Mauricio, I'm I'm guessing you don't want to jump in on on that one. We we move to the next question. Is that right? Uh,
0: no, I, I mean I think I I think I agree with everything that Ramon has said. Um, you know, the, the the only kind of um, point that I would add is that. Um, what is often common in these kind of situations so of disasters is that countries um, carried out some kind of public inquiry to try to find out what happened, um, and I think some of those exercises might be more common in democracies in which this uh, questioning of what was done wrong, when was done well. Um, may have sort of, um, you know, self the purpose. And I think some of this was done sort of uh, not in the same way, maybe in which it was done, for example, in the UK or so, but but it was done to some level to try to use this. Um, 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 but, but, you know, I think it happened both in, you know, democratic and democratic countries. So it, it maybe reflects something more about, about the political willingness rather than the, the political system as such. So, so yeah, just do that. Thank you.
1: Well, I mean, I, I was thinking as well, rather than, regime type for me there's also a sense of the proximity to what was unfolding in in wuhan and that driving a sense of urgency and in thinking about my research on the vietnamese case that's very front and, and center and a lot of uh what what you read what you see what you heard and speaking with people is you know the risk of it of it coming into our borders was so quick and so real that action was necessary and i think you know, regime type aside that gave an urgency to that sort of underscored the entire response. Um, moving to the, the next question. Um, so the question is, what is unique about the political culture of Taiwan or South Korea that allow their populations as democracies to quickly consent to enhance surveillance? Is it perhaps authoritarian roots? roots? So so again, sort of uh, regime type, but then also asking, or is it about sort of Confucian collective mindset? So getting more into the the role of culture.
2: I think one of the things we try to do in in the report is is really to to, to move beyond these uh, these explanations, if only uh, implicitly, right? there has been a discussion and clearly towards the beginning of the pandemic about the, the role of culture, how authoritarian these countries are. I mean, I wouldn't argue that true authoritarian authoritarian roots, right, having been there in the past has much of an influence. We saw massive demonstrations that candlelight um, a protest in, in, in South Korea that removed the previous uh, president uh, uh, from power, right, in, in 2016, uh, uh, 2017. Uh, and, and there was no uh, authority and response, so to speak, if anything was the opposite, right? A, a move against the perceived authoritarianism from the uh, uh, from, from the previous president. Um, the same in Taiwan. I mean, you, you see a very open uh, democratic system um, there in the country as well. Uh, furthermore, I, I, I would argue, if you look at, for example, how technologies uh, were developed in these countries, they would go against uh, authoritarianism, right? Because there was a spirit of collaboration between the state uh, between the government institutions and the people uh, of these countries to develop the necessary technologies and improve the necessary uh, the technologies that were in place uh, to deal with, uh, uh, with, with the pandemic and um, since we, we, we with Confucianism uh, it is true that there's this idea that Confucianism is still strong uh, across East Asia uh, even if this uh, were the case I mean I go back to the point that I made before uh, we have had full lockdowns here in in, in the UK and other uh, European countries. And for the most part, people have been complying with this. I mean, I wouldn't say we are obedient, right? But we have been complying with this because we think this is good for not only for ourselves, but for the whole country, right? So if you want to make the case that it is true that across East Asia, uh, people perceive that it was good, for example, to be wearing masks, uh, that it was good to self-isolate if they thought they had uh, their disease, because this is good not only for themselves but for the population as a whole, uh, that is true. But I wouldn't say this is confusion or specific to to Stacia because of what I mentioned before. It's happening in other parts uh, in in other parts of the world, and 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 the, the, the counter argument sometimes you hear in in Stacia, Well, if it is about Confucianism why have Spain or Italy done so poorly? Is it because of Catholicism, right? And we would never argue that. We wouldn't argue, well, you know, in some Southern European countries, the response hasn't been good because of Catholicism, or, or let's say in the UK, the response hasn't been good because of the Church of England or or, or Protestantism, right? Or we wouldn't uh, make that argument. So, so so, I think that that's really not the, the, uh, the key reason, even though, I mean, we do acknowledge that there, there has been a, a debate uh, there, uh, more in February, March, I think now we have moved more towards other types of responses, which is where our respo- which are where our um, um, report kicks in, right which is more about the, uh, the institutional response from the countries in the region.
1: Uh, thinking that um, I read various analysis that's just to pick up on that point that in the in the UK, the expectations for the public's compliance. Um, I had had expected, frankly, that we would be less compliant than we were, Um, which I I think, again, sort of adds to your point that there isn't necessarily a a cultural driver uh, here. Certainly not front and center. Um, Moving to to the next question. Uh, The question from an anonymous attendee asks, do we have any evidence on the impact of measures taken in East Asia on mental health? Was it different to the European experience? Uh, Mauricio, maybe this is one for, for you to lead on.
0: Yeah, thank you, Robin. That's a a great question. I'm happy to see that question. Um, And I'm I'm happy to say that I don't think we have an answer to that question. Uh, So mental health. um, um, So at Kings, we run this Center on Society and Mental Health, where we're trying to um, evaluate some of the impact of the measures on mental health. Um, I think I would say two things about this. The first one is that what some some of us think of as mental illness, of, of diseases, common mental health disorders, Are actually something that is much more serious and much more pervasive than what people think are the impacts of the lockdown. So, so we often do not necessarily kind of very easily say that the lockdowns and these kind of measures, for example, increase the prevalence of sex and psychotic disorders or so. Um, But we see this as a more, you know, it's kind of what we call social suffering, a normal response to actually distress that happens when people experience an earthquake that we saw, for example, in Japan or, you know, natural disasters. So, I think the first question that we have to ask is, is, there really an increase in mental health problems in response to that and i think it's it's yet sort of something to be to be defined um now um we don't really have data to say or to assess whether uh you know some of the social distress or perhaps some of the onset of mental health problems has been more common in southeast asia Um, um, than European countries and I I think that's going to be very difficult to establish because of the different perceptions about mental health in different parts of the world and the the tendency um, also in some countries to be more open to talk about mental health and so on so I, I think we're still sort of you know, this is still remains kind of um, an open question that we sort of um, um, yeah, still need to establish. Um, but whether, you know, whether you're thinking that those sort of very, you know, stringent measures led to some sort of massive epidemic of, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, um, is not something that has been, uh, certainly is not something that has been reported in the literature. It's certainly not something that has been different from all the European countries.
1: That's great. Um... I have a question that's come in from Luis, a student at GHSM uh, with you Marcio Kings, um, asking how important are the health systems in East Asia? How many have a mix of private and and public? And if so, what's that been the role in in success in tackling COVID-19?
0: Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. I, I, we, you know, we didn't go into the very details of the structure of health systems, but I think one of the important lessons come from uh, the example that we refer to in the case of Taiwan, um, in which there's a single payer national health system. And I think the availability of a system such as this one that covers the national population, uh, what it enables is the possibility to collect data for the entire population through national health insurance claims. And this clearly enables a much more effective response to the pandemic, but also planning for the pandemic response. This is obviously not the case in a very fragmented system, such as the system in the U.S., um, in which, you know, even if perhaps there was a different president, we would have Potentially experience, um, you know, similar difficulties um, associated with a very fragmented system um, that the U.S. has. Um, so, so, I do think that the that the you know the, the 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 tendency to have national health systems, and I think you know all of these um, countries that we looked at had some kind of coordinated national health system uh, with different sort of levels of participation of the private versus the public. Uh, the fact that there is a national health system doesn't mean that it's all publicly provided. Uh, so for example, the Netherlands is a system with a national health insurance system, um, but actually much of it is kind of, if you like, uh, publicly provided. This is true for the education as well as to the health system. So it just means a publicly coordinated system, whether it is a national health regulation and national health insurance. So I think it's definitely sort of was very important to the effectiveness of the response. I don't know if you want to say something about that, uh, Ramon?
2: Yes, I mean, I, I think, yes, building on what you said, the example of Taiwan uh, is great. Basically, what you look is, uh, all the countries we looked at have a, a single payer system, right? So it's similar to the, European, to the European model. In some cases, you have more private providers involved than in others, where you have more public providers involved. And uh, you have, for example, university hospitals, which are, uh, quite common across the region as well. So something similar to what we have, for example, in, in many European countries, right? So so in terms of the system, instead of saying public-private, you would say it's a very similar system to the, the ones we have in Europe. The single-payer system, everyone is covered. Um, you don't have uh, a fragmented system in each, let's say, each different uh, city or province or or, or or region is fairly independent from from, from each other, right? So there is... Little information sharing uh, more a national system in which information is centralized and anyone can be treated uh, wherever and they don't have to pay in advance which means that you know um, people across the region did not hesitate when they had symptoms to go and be treated right because you don't have to pay for this or uh, um, and not only you don't you don't you don't you don't have to pay uh, for this, but actually you will be uh, welcome because this a way of stopping uh, transmission, right? And um, as we said, what we did see is that uh, as soon as the uh, pandemic kicked in, uh, you saw cooperation with the private sector because there are private hospitals, there are private providers, right? And uh, you see how these were these were mobilized, not necessarily to uh, to uh, house. Um, uh, patients that were infected with uh, COVID-19, but for example, to deal with other illnesses, right? So you have this separation between those that are infected and those that are not, that are not, in, that are not infected, right? So most isolation took place, for example, in government facilities, not only hospitals, but uh, other facilities set aside specifically uh, uh, to isolate, but then the private sector could pick up some of the slack to deal with other Uh, illnesses like for example uh, cancer treatment right so they could pick up cancer treatment that otherwise wouldn't take place in a public hospital because this hospital is dealing with uh, with COVID-19 so it was more about the single payer system which is fairly similar to the European one I I would say more a model in some cases on the European one if you look at Japan if you look at Korea for example they have looked at how the healthcare system works in, in, in Western Europe and, and, and this was years ago, decades ago, and they have modeled themselves on Europe rather than the U.S.
1: That's right. And just to add to that, I mean, in, in Vietnam, I spoke with the developers of the COVID-19 test kits. Uh, two of the teams responsible for developing those test kits, and a, a similar value came from the information sharing across the hospital system. So, mm-hmm. once there was the first patient in Vietnam on January twenty-third, from from that point onwards the samples from hospitals across the country came and, and were made available uh, through the National Institute of Health and Epidemiology, but then also to the, the teams working on developing the test kits. So I, it very much resonates uh, in what I've seen in Vietnam as well. Yeah, um, I mean,
2: actually, I wanted to add, actually, because that reminds me. Uh, that's a very good point. In, in the case of, uh, of Korea, Taiwan especially, and I think Hong Kong, um, you have these centralized systems that allow for communication and coordination uh, among the different providers. So you could upload the information, right? And once the information had been uploaded, uh, um, not only uh, healthcare professionals, but also, for example, uh, police forces, in case they have to be, to be used, uh, firefighters could actually, could actually access this information as well. So that was Taiwan, Korea, and, and Hong Kong. So very similar to what you just mentioned there.
1: That's great. We have one, one more question from the, the Q&A, and then I'll ask one uh, final question uh, for both of our panelists. The last question coming from our from our audience comes from Joshua Ting, and his question is, as countries slowly ease restrictions with the risk of new infection clusters popping up in some countries, what aspects of institutional capacity in your opinion, needs to be addressed in order to prevent another deadly wave. Mm. So the second wave and in institutional capacity.
2: Yeah. Uh, Marita, you want to go ahead with this one?
0: Um, yeah, I can get started. Yep. Um, yes, I think I think there is a lot of uncertainty about what will happen in terms of a potential second wave. Um, but it's um, you know based on private epidemics, it's likely that this this might be the case. Um, now, I think one of the lessons that at least for example European countries um, are likely to have learned and are trying to implement these sort of the infrastructures that sort it of needed to sort of. Uh, instead of waiting, uh, you know, timing is very critical, instead of waiting that there is a very widespread disease, the particular out, uh, pockets of disease, that there is actually a very aggressive sort of system for tracing and tracking. And I think some of those strategies are actually classical public health strategies that have existed for a long time, but that were not effectively implemented uh, um, on time uh, before. So, you know, in some ways that kind of resembles in trying to mimic the kind of response that, uh, you know, many countries in uh, um, East Asia actually uh, uh, um, uh, took, so try to do and tra- you know, track and tracing very early, you know, try to isolate uh, you know, in the hospitals as Ramos was saying, sort of try to isolate patients early from the rest of the patients and so on, so all of this really I would say like really kind of classical public health measures that uh, we were essentially too late to implement when the disease had already spread and we were really in the face of trying to contain the negative kind of overwhelming impact on the healthcare system, so try to act much earlier for that, so I think that is the That is kind of the response that I think it's going to be most effective and that will resemble what was done in Asia in the very beginning. Um, Ramon, did you have something to add on that? Uh,
2: Yes, a a couple of points. One of them, you you mentioned this before, right? But in terms of preparedness, uh, we have seen that in many um, European countries uh, and also in the case of the US, many infections have been actually in the the hospital system, right? Uh, And this is because there was no adequate equipment uh, for 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 doctors, for for nurses treating the, the patients, right? No PPE equipment. Uh, there were not enough isolation facilities. Uh, for example, there were not enough ICUs for the uh, for those that were uh, uh, m- more sick, right? And had to be treated in a more invasive uh, way. I mean that, that that that's crucial. And what you have seen in uh, across East Asian countries is that uh, they have been a stockpiling as they were using uh, all this equipment. Uh, and the second. Um, issue to, to to discuss is, is, is contact tracing. Uh, so you have seen in China, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan uh, the use of technology. Japan is about to introduce the use of technology as well for for contact tracing. But a point that Marisa mentioned before, which is crucial, uh, human resources are key. Uh, yes, you can collect the information, but then you need the contact tracers that are able to identify those people, for example, that should be contacted to uh, carry out a test. Uh, there is a risk that after the first wave is over, the contact tracers that have been hired across many different European countries uh, won't be renewed in their contracts, for example, right? And, and, and they won't be there in place and then they have to be hired as well. This is not happening in East Asia. There is a realization that it is probable or very likely that there will be a second wave. So you have these people who have been engaged in contact tracing that know how to uh, use the technology, that know how to follow the protocol to contact those that might have been. Uh, infected, and they will be kept in place probably until we find a, a vaccine or the, or, the, or the coronavirus definitely uh, dies out. And I think that's quite important as well, that you have to spend money and resources on the technology, but also on the human side of, of how to deal with the pandemic.
1: So one last question uh, for you both, and to pick up, um, Ramon, on, on what you just mentioned about the, the human side. Um, Thinking in East Asia, but all over the world, we've seen that the pandemic, and particularly the the lockdown um, as well, has had a massively differential impact um, on on different parts of populations um, for socioeconomic reasons. Um, and, And we've seen some... Uh, in my view, really tremendous innovations come from government and from grassroots innovators. So, so thinking in the case of Vietnam, for instance, the creation of these so-called rice ATMs uh, that use technology for people that you know otherwise are having a really hard time uh, getting food to be able to to go and to access you know kilos of of rice coming out of a hole in the wall. Um, which eased the the burden for those who were really struggling um, socioeconomically um, so I wanted to ask you both your thoughts on lessons for the next pandemic if there are to be ensuing lockdowns and if this type of thing is necessary, how to ease the burden across the whole of society knowing that it's not you know experienced by everyone in the same way. Mm.
2: I, I think that's quite important, and I mean, Mauricio touched on it, and we discussed on the report, for example, the, the use of um, um, robots, for example, for issues such as uh, food delivery of, or disinfection, something that uh, Hong Kong was doing. Uh, I mean, the, the, this helped, for example, as you say, some people that might not be willing to, 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 to leave their houses, right? So, so they can get it uh, delivered without human contact, so there is no risk of, 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 of contagion. Uh, what we have seen as well is some, some of these countries, for example, uh, 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 Korea, uh, the government delivered uh, food packages and, 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 and to to people who were in self-isolation, right? And these were not uh, just a couple of snacks, right, that you will eat in one day. It was enough food that you could uh, be fed for a number of days, right? And then you could re- receive more food as well, right? And, and this is uh, irrespective of your... Uh, socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic background, and there were main pictures of this actually on on on, on, on social media. So you have different ways of 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 dealing with this. And my Im- impression is that what you're seeing across uh, East Asia is also a bit of learning uh, from each other. So now there's discussion about the use of robots in places such as Singapore that has been uh, uh, using them for treatment supervision, but not for food delivery. to use it for food delivery as well, right? So so mm-hmm. something that has been done in, 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 in Hong Kong. These food packages, that I mentioned before, in South Korea, there's discussion, for example, about why not doing the same across other countries uh, in East And it's a way to minimize uh, the impact on, on, on those, as you say, that suffer the most uh, from this, and normally are those with a, uh, in a poorer socioeconomic background. Great,
1: thank you. Mauricio, final thank thoughts?
2: You. Thank you,
0: Robin. Yes, I I, I think I completely agree with Ramon. I think the use of technology is very important. Um, However, I I would say that the lesson that really we can sort of draw from East Asia is that even with the very much advanced technology that we could have, as it may be available, it's going to be very difficult to prevent the negative economic and social impacts that a lockdown of the magnitude that we've seen in Europe and the US, for example, uh, has. So I think the lesson from um, East Asia is really that governments, that the Cannot be emphasized enough how important it is to intervene early and effectively um, to be able to prevent that and a lockdown itself has to be implemented and I think the lesson that we learn learned from them is that actually this can only be achieved by years of experience and building up capacity and institutional memories uh, of what, what, what is the way to deal with an epidemic uh, and, and to maintain that memory as Ramon says to a number of different activities um, and exercises. And that every, every single uh, dollar, euro or pound or whatever invested in that is actually going to deliver economically. So any investment in public health and disease control is going to deliver by preventing this kind of situation that we've experienced. So that would be kind of my, my main takeaway, actually, from the station experience for uh, other countries.
1: That's great. So picking up exactly on on this, where some of the the big themes as well the the role of of prevention and flattening the curve from the beginning, and that comes from this institutional memory that um, has played such an important role across various uh, aspects of of the response in in East Asia. Uh, so we're sort of bang on time, uh, and we'll we'll wrap up uh, this second installment of the World We Got This uh, webinar. Thank you very much, uh, Ramon and and Mauricio for joining me today. And thanks uh, to all of our our audience in in various technology platforms. Uh, We really appreciate having you join us today. Feel free to continue to uh, follow the conversation, uh, get in touch with us on various uh, social media platforms, Twitter, for instance, and, and the King's website, uh, the report has so much rich detail and, and great comparisons and, and visuals as well. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, uh, I, I encourage you to do that. Uh, but, I'll, but I'll wrap us on, on time and say thanks once again to our panelists.
2: Thank you, Robin. And thank you, everyone, for attending. Thank you. And thanks for the great questions, you. Yes.
0: You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash worldwegotthis. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepanowska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.